one more Advent message, and then we get to our Christmas Eve Eve celebration. Tonight, I was telling my family yesterday that since I've been here, this is my 302nd sermon. And Nicole heard 300 second sermon and she got pretty excited. It's only gonna be five minutes. <laughs> Said you might be lucky. <laughs> I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, turn with me uh, in them to a little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So we call the letter Philippians and we're in the fourth chapter. We've been in the same passage uh, for three weeks now, and this is, this is the fourth one, and uh, we're going to look at that in just a minute. I, I wanted to tell you that when I was growing up, my, many of you know my sport that I played was ice hockey, and there was one consistent message that every single one of my coaches uh, tried to instill in us as we were learning the game. And the, the one consistent message was skate with your head up. Look where you're going. Don't look at the ice. Look up. Don't look at your skates. Keep your head on a swivel. Don't look at the puck. You need to learn how to control the puck without looking at it. You need to have your head on that swivel because you want to see where the defenders are. If you skate in the game of ice hockey with your head down, you're going to get blown up. You need to watch where your teammates are. So if one of them comes open, you can make a pass. You need to watch where you're going and you need to look at the goal because the point of ice hockey is to score goals so that you can win the game. I have found that I have taken that counsel, that instruction, in many different places in life. I find myself constantly uh, reminding myself to look up, look around. It, it changes the journey if you, if you think about it. it um, you don't need to stare at your feet all of the time. I mean, it gets kind of boring just looking at the ground wherever you're going. You look up. You see, you take in the beauty of the world around you. If you're on a hiking trail, sure, you need to watch out for the occasional rock and root. But if you're hiking in the mountains and you go home and all you remember is seeing a dirt path, there's a little problem with that. Look up, take in the beauty. I have always found that when I look up, it seems to make the journey go a little bit quicker because I see where I'm going and all of a sudden you're there. It, it makes the journey a whole lot brighter, a whole lot more interesting, and I would say a whole lot lighter because there's more beauty and enjoyment in it. I, I think the season of Advent is encouragement for us to look up, 
to look around, to not become absorbed in and overwhelmed by all of the daily worries of life. I think Advent teaches us to keep our heads up in anticipation of, of what is to come. It's a season that, yes, it's, it's pointing us back to the hope that we find in Jesus Christ who, was, who came to us in Bethlehem and born in the manger, but Advent is a whole lot more than just a look back. Advent is also a season that, yes, we remember that, that moment, the nativity of Jesus, but it also points us forward and teaches us to keep our heads up and to look through the cross of forgiveness and look even further than that to the promise that Jesus made before he left, that one day he will come again. Advent is a season that teaches us to keep our heads up and to look around and to see that. Paul, in his writing to this church in Philippi, is uh, it's, it's a word of encouragement for them, especially the two verses that, that I wanna look at this morning. He is, in a way, telling them that in the midst of all of the troubling circumstances that they face in their lives, all of the pers- persecution that they are suffering, that they need to keep their heads up and look for some things. So we're in Philippians in chapter four and the two verses that I wanna focus our attention on today are, are verses eight and nine. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Look for them, ponder them, dwell on them. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about those things. Put your mind, and engage your mind to look for those sorts of things as you move through all of the circles in your life. And I love how Paul, he presents the list and he doesn't say this is a distinctively Christian set of things to look for. He says you can see these things in your daily walk through life. He doesn't look, he doesn't say, look for Christians who are displaying trueness and nobleness and rightness and purity and love. He doesn't say, look for Christians who are exhibiting these traits. He says, whatever is true, whatever is right, and he repeats that word, whatever, before every virtue that he lists. I think he's suggesting to us that we can see these things in all of life, in every circle that we would travel. He's not saying that Christians have a corner on these 
virtues, but you can see them in the world if you look for them. He says, think about these things. You can see people who are treating others with respect and dignity if you look for it. If if you look around, you can see people who are putting other people's needs ahead of their own. And he says, when you do that, call it out. Think about it. Affirm them. He wants us to acknowledge these qualities in others when we see them. C.S. Lewis, he affirms this line of thinking. He says um, something to the effect that Christian standards of morality and beauty are not simply expressions of subjective feelings, but truths graciously revealed by God and wired into our DNA for the welfare of his people and all of creation. People other than Christians frequently recognize the validity of these virtues. And when they do, we ought to support them, even sometimes learning from them and taking comfort that what we acknowledge to be the directive of God, things that we acknowledge to be right on the basis of what God tells us in his word, other people are acknowledging because it's written into the fiber of who they are, because every human is created in the image of God, and there are qualities of God that are written into our souls, whether we know it or acknowledge it. And Paul says you can see when, these, when the way that we are wired as humans to take care of other people and God's creation, when those things bubble up and out, we ought to affirm them and look for them. I had a recent conversation with someone who's not a professing Christian, and they, the conversation got around to uh, well, what do you do? That, that's a trick question for a pastor. It's, it's a really difficult question to answer. Because sometimes you get into a conversation with somebody who they have no idea um, what I do for a living and may have used some vocabulary that um, if they knew what I did, they might... Oh my, I don't know if I should say that or not. And so when the question comes out, well, what do you do? Uh, oftentimes I'll say, well, I, I help people. That's a pretty vague answer. <laughs> well, it was a really pointed question, so I had to just straight up say, well, I'm, I'm a pastor of one of the local churches. Got a wonderful group of people in my church. I said, well, what, what does that mean? Like, what? I'm not really a church person. Is your church, I mean, you said help people. How does your church help people? And I have a lot of great answers for that question. Because we as a congregation are engaged with helping people in the community. And so I, I told them about uh, our Socktober event where we were collecting food to take down to the gospel mission. 
where how we were collecting socks to take down to the gospel mission. I'm like, wow, that's that's amazing. Do you, you know, and they were curious about like, well, what does that look like? I mean, how much stuff do you collect? And then I, I was able to tell them about the the effort that we just recently wrapped up last week of of collecting pajamas for the Human Response Network, which, by the way, isn't a Christian organization by nature, but they do a lot of wonderful work, and we need to support them. And so that's one of the reasons why we, we move alongside organizations like that, because we see purity, and we see loveliness, and we see nobleness, and we see all of those characteristics that we want to affirm when we see them. And so I was telling this person about how we wanted to give gifts to the clients that they work with who are escaping domestic abuse situations. And we want to give them something that maybe they had to leave behind. And they're like, wow, that's just amazing. And, and they ask, how could, could I contribute to that? That's what Paul is pointing out to us. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, all of those virtues that he goes through, he's like, look, look for them. Keep, keep your head up and on a swivel. And, and when you identify those things, call them out, point them out. Because in this conversation with this person that I met, talking about these things and affirming their desire to step in and help, uh, my prayer is that there would be opportunities that when that happens to us that God would open up the door that we could connect the dots between their desire to help people and to act on the way God designed them. My prayer is that we would be able to connect those dots and tell them why it is that they might have those feelings for other people. Well, Paul uses these encouraging words for us. And I don't want you to miss how he lays this out. I think it might be a good idea if, if, you, if you took a little three by five card, or maybe even something smaller if you don't want to carry it around. But I, I, I would maybe suggest that you write these two verses out carry them around on a little card for a while so that you can review them. Uh, in, in this day and age, I think it's ever so critical for us to notice how Paul presents this idea in a positive way. He told us what to focus on. He told us what to look for he didn't, tell us, he didn't tell it to us in the negative. And what I mean by that is he didn't tell us what to avoid. He told us what to look for. He, didn't, he did not say, brothers and sisters, do not dwell on what is false, dishonorable, unjust, polluted, terrible, deplorable, mediocre, and hateful. He didn't tell us not to dwell on those things. He went for the positive frame of mind. He says, look for the good. Because if you ask me, you don't have to look very far out into the world to find all of the negative things. 
You don't have to look very far to find things that are false and terrible and deplorable and hateful. It would be very easy for us to dwell on the hate that's out in the world and let the negativity cloud our vision. See, when, when we focus on the negative, what we're doing is we're staring at our skates. We're staring at the ice. Our, our vision is down. And Paul says, no. That's not how you play the game. What I want you to do is I want you to lift your head. I want you to look up. I want you to look around. And I want you to look for the things that are positive and healthy. The, the virtues that draw people together that are life bringing, not things that spiral us down into destruction. It can be terribly discouraging to look at the state of our world around us. You might even, you might even read the news headlines and come to the conclusion that it's kind of hopeless. We're bombarded with the negativity message all of the time. And it can be terribly discouraging. And it can drive your vision from looking up and out to down, into the spiral of hate-filled negativity. And Paul, he's writing to a church that was, well, they were facing the same kinds of things, only maybe even a little bit worse because they were suffering physical persecution for their beliefs as followers of Christ. The society around them was against them. And I think deep down inside, Paul knew that because the society was against them, was rejecting them, that when, when those Christians looked up and out into the world and they saw everything that was brutality and, and hostility directed towards them, that it might change their attitude about the people who were not yet believers. Because if you look up and out and, and all you see is the hate and the problems and the discouragement and the hopelessness, you, you might get to the point where you start to reject the people who aren't already Christians yet. And Paul says, don't do it. Paul is encouraging them to take on the positive mindset. Yes, even in the people who are hurting you, they do exhibit some of these qualities. And when they do, you need to move closer to them. Say, wow, that was, that was awesome how you took care of this. Because if we look out into our world and we just assume that everybody who's not a professing Christian is bad and evil and part of the problem, we're not taking on how God sees people. God's not ready to be done with the world yet. God's not done with you, he's not done with us, he's not done with the city, he's not done with our state, he's not done with our country or the world. If we're looking down, 
we might not be able to say amen to that. But when we look up and we look out into the eyes of the people who are there, we can see them as God sees them, as people who he created in his own image and people who he loves dearly. And Paul does not want the church in Philippi to forget that at all. So my contention is, is that looking for the positive things in life that, that Paul demands us to look for, it goes a long way in us maintaining hope in a world that oftentimes seems bleak and hopeless. If you listen to people, we have a very hope-filled vocabulary. People want to hope in something. Uh, you, you hear people say things like, well, I, I sure hope it doesn't rain today. Missed that one. I hope he or she isn't mad at me. I hope I get the job. I hope this is the year the Mariners go to the World Series. <laughs> that might not be hope, that might be wishful thinking. But <laughs> I, hope, I hope my family can get along this Christmas. I hope the test results come back clear. I hope we'll have enough money to make it this month. Listen to people talk. Listen to the words that might come out of your mouth. How often the vocabulary of hope shows up. I think we express our hopes a lot because we live in a world where hope seems to be in very short supply and any hope that we can muster seems to be temporary and often is just dashed on the rocks. I hope it's not going to rain today. Well, there's disappointment if you're staking your hope in that. So many times the test results don't come back clear or you don't have the perfect family Christmas or all of those things that it can turn so easily and we suffer that disappointment and the discouragement when our the things that we say we're hoping for don't happen we live with a lot of broken hope and it's not all that unusual for things that we say that we're hoping in to disappoint us and so sometimes we get to the place where we're afraid to hope anymore because we've been hurt by it so many times. But we can't stop hoping because God wired hope into who we are. And he wants, he wants our capacity to hope to drive us to his throne. I think too often we look for hope horizontally. This, this direction. We look for hope this way. We place our hope in people only to find that oftentimes they fail us and we figure out that they're as, as weak and needy as we are. Sometimes we place our hope in money, in finances, in consumerism. I, I, I kind of find it a little bit ironic that 
in our currency, we put in God we trust on our currency, while at the same time, where are we staking our hope? Are we staking it in the phrase that's on it, in God we trust, or are we staking it in the currency itself? For others, it's technology and science and advancement and just advancing humanity. Some people stake their hope in being safe and secure and whatever that looks like. Some people put their hope in making it big somehow. Maybe it's through academics or athletics or your career or whatever it is. Invest a lot of hope into making it somehow in this world. But if you notice the things that are on the horizontal plane are things that that are tangible, they're, they're tactile. The things that we put our hope in in this plane are all things that we, in some fashion, can control. And we want to put our hope in things that we have some measure of control over. But all the things in the horizontal, they're, they're temporary. It's like, how many of you have a freshly cut tree in your house? A few of you? If you've ever had a freshly cut tree, they, they smell wonderful, and they're vibrant, and they're beautiful. It's a sign of life right in the middle of your living room. But you know what? In a few weeks, <laughs> it's going to be dried out. The needles are going to be falling off. And as you drag that thing out to the curb, you're going to leave a trail of dead pine needles all the way. Putting your hope in things in this horizontal plane are like that Christmas tree in your room. Eventually, they're going to dry out and you're going to have to take them out to the curb. They just won't last. So I think, you know, just like the people who are in Isaiah's audience, we, we misplace our hope in these horizontal things and we're constantly bombarded by invitations out in the world to place our hope in other things than in God. And so we end up like the people in Isaiah's audience who are like sheep that have gone astray. And we have turned every one of us to our own way. So what the Christmas story declares to us is that God is our hope. Our, our true hope is only found when you look for it vertically, not horizontally. So when everything might seem hopeless, and we don't want to, when we need something more, the Advent Christmas story reminds us to look to the manger, to look to God, to be the one who is our ultimate hope. The, the devil wants you to believe otherwise. The devil is the one who is behind the big engine that's encouraging you to place your hope in the horizontal plane. But folks, it's a lie. It's a lie. And the truth of the story is even more powerful And the truth is, with God, is there is always hope. There is always, always hope because Jesus is alive and he's well and he's reigning and he's ruling. 
And while we may suffer for a season, God's purposes will prevail in the end. There's always hope because Jesus was born, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross for our sins, and he was raised to new life again. There's always hope. Through Jesus, our sins can be pardoned. We can be forgiven for all of the ways we've sinned against God and other people. And all we need to do to step into that forgiveness is to, to repent, to turn around and, 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 and say it out loud to God, yes, I, I'm a sinner. I've, I've done all of those things. God, would you, would you forgive me? And God's gracious love for you in his gracious love for you, he will forgive you. He's already forgiven you. He's waiting for you to step into that forgiveness and ask for it. And he will release you from the guilt and shame that you might be carrying around. And he'll no longer count your sins against you. There's always, there's always hope. There's always hope because God's given us his Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate, the helper, part of his person that he unleashed in the world to live inside us and to guide us and to direct us into all rightness and truth. There's always hope because God loves you and he never gives up on you. When, when you're caught up in everything that you think you're not, God sees the best in you. He, he sees the potential that you have if you would turn to him. He sees the, the future that he would prefer for you to have. He knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your problems. He knows all of those troubles and he knows your potential and there's always, always hope. So the message of Advent is simply hope to keep this hope alive in your heart. One of my favorite verses in, in the Bible, it comes out of a story of Abraham's struggle. God had promised he and Sarah that, that even in their old age that they would, would bear a child, a son. And that Abraham would be the father of, of many nations. And they're getting up in their years and there's no child. So there's this struggle, this faith crisis that Abraham goes through because God has promised him something and he's not yet seen it come to reality in his life. And Paul writes about it in Romans 4. He says, even when there was no reason for hope, maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe, maybe it's just been tough these last weeks or last years. Maybe it doesn't seem, maybe it's the, just all of the stuff out in the world that's getting to you, and maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe it feels like even when there was no reason for hope. That's not where the story ends. It said Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. 
believing that God would remain true and faithful and honor the promise that he made. What are you hoping for these days? Everybody's got something on their list. Where are you looking for that hope? Jürgen Moltmann, theologian, he wrote a book called Theology of Hope. He encourages us. He says, keep on hoping in Jesus Christ. Genuine hope is not blind optimism. It is hope with open eyes which sees the suffering yet believes in the future. It's a reminder that if we look at what's going on in the world, hope might be hard to find. But when you place your hope in the person of Jesus Christ, we're declaring a deeply rooted belief that God's not done. So Paul's message to the church in Philippi is keep your hope alive. Take on a mindset that is positive. Look for the things of virtue and of value that are out in the world and affirm those and move towards them. But he goes a little bit further in verse nine. Look at verse nine again. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, what does he say? Put it into practice. Practice. Hope's staying power is strengthened through practice. You know, when I was learning how to ice skate and play hockey with my head up, there were so many times where I'd be trying to dribble the puck and I'd look down and the puck is gone. Like, where'd it go? (laughs) But it, it takes a lot of practice to be able to look and engage with everything that's going on in front of you and think and make decisions and identify defenders and teammates and the plays that are happening and control the puck at the same time with just sensing that it's there. Trying to keep hope alive in your heart is kind of like that. You, it'll never happen unless you put it into practice. Develop the habit of hope. Train yourself to see what God sees and act like Jesus would act. Paul says to the church in Philippi, hey, if you don't know how to do that, watch me. Watch me. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard or seen in me, put it into practice. In other words, he's gone through those drills throughout his life. And to a certain degree, he's got a lot of it down. And he said, if you're looking for a human example of what this might look like, look at me. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Train yourself to see what God sees. Don't play the game the world plays. Rise above it. Be a beacon of hope by injecting examples of what these virtues look like out into the culture. When when you place your hope in Christ, you can share that with other people. There's a world that's desperately seeking something that they can hope in. Folks, we have the answer to that question. 
It's Jesus Christ. People need to see what that looks like in very authentic and real and true ways. And it's very compelling when people see a good picture of what that looks like. And Paul tells these people, don't just think about it and ponder it and dwell on it. Go to church and hear a nice message about it and then go home and do something differently. Hear all of that, see all of that, ponder it, internalize it, and then go and do. It may require that you go beyond the boundary lines of comfort that you've drawn around your life. Extending the hope of Jesus Christ to other people, nine times or more out of ten will call you it will dare you to cross the line, the boundary line that you've put on your life. You might have to cross the line to go to somebody else, but there's another way of thinking about it. You might need to let somebody else step across the boundary that you have arbitrarily drawn so that you can show them what God's welcoming love looks like, that you can follow Jesus on his mission to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, that you can set the captives free, that you can be a light in the darkness. We're going to sing it tonight. One of my favorite Christmas carols is O Holy Night. And there's some very powerful lyrics in that song. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. Maybe think about that line is chains will he break because the people who are out in the world who you might think are representatives of the hate-filled negativity, chains will he break because they are our brother and our sister. And in his name all oppression shall cease. It's a song that encourages us to see with God's eyes and treat other people like it. I, I heard us heard a story of a wise old rabbi and he instructed some of his students by asking, asking them this question. He asked, how can a person tell when the darkness ends and the day begins? That's a good question, isn't it? How can a person tell when the darkness ends and the day begins? A couple of the students thought about it for a little bit and, and one of them replied, well, it is, it is when there is enough light to see if an animal in the distance is a sheep or a goat. Another student came up with the answer, well, it's, it's when there's enough light to see a tree and know if it is a fig tree or an oak tree. The rabbi kind of shook his head. No. It's when you can look into a person's face and recognize them as your brother or sister. 
For if you cannot recognize in another's face the face of your brother or sister, the darkness has not yet begun to lift and the light has not yet come. See, our hope that we are talking about this morning and focusing on this Advent season is in Jesus Christ who marks the end of the darkness and the beginning of an everlasting day. That's something to ponder. That's something to share. People of God said, Amen.